You're listening to the Deconstructing Success podcast. I am your host, Tima Alhaj. Have you ever wondered what happens behind closed doors when it comes to real success? I know I have, and this is exactly why this show was created. I have an insatiable desire when it comes to learning from the best in the world and an obsession with how successful people think, operate, and execute. I want to know what sets these people apart from the average person. Each week, my focus is to have intimate conversations with successful CEOs, founders, athletes, experts, and leaders that have created extraordinary levels of success in their own lives. My goal is to ask the right questions whilst deconstructing their success process, their mindset, their life philosophy, and how they continue to achieve success. I want this information to be actionable for my listeners so you can achieve the success you desire and create your dream life. If you are hungry to grow and evolve to your full potential, Then continue listening and subscribe as I deconstruct success from some of the greatest minds and the most inspirational individuals in the world. This is episode 12 of the Deconstructing Success podcast. Today's guest is Daryl Job. Daryl has one of those stories that is truly incredible, so I decided to make this a two-part episode. Daryl grew up in Richmond, California, which is often ranked as one of the most dangerous cities in the US. Daryl went from going into prison to making a better life for himself. It is truly like a movie. Daryl from a young age ended up in a gang and was incarcerated as both a juvenile and a young adult. And at the age of 23, he was looking at a substantial amount of jail time when a judge showed him some leniency. He gave him a second chance. Daryl was finishing his sentence and whilst he was in jail, he made a promise to himself that he will create a better life and he did just that. Fast forward to today, Daryl Job is the CEO and founder of Vericool. Vericool delivers substantial insulation thermal coolers that protects products, people and the planet. One of the reasons why I wanted to interview Daryl is because he truly believes in second chances and he applies this to his business. So a majority of his employees are actually former inmates. In part one, we cover the following. We really delve into Daryl's upbringing and what his relationship was like with his parents and his sisters, what it was like growing up with a single mother and at times not having enough food to eat let alone having clean clothes to wear. What it was like when Daryl went to boarding school and coming back to reality. Why Daryl left home at the age of 13 and how he ended up being a part of a gang. What it also means to be a part of a gang and we really delve quite a lot into his time as a gang member. We also touch on how Daryl dealt with anger and resentment to then having this feeling of power that allowed him to use this as revenge. We cover so much in part one. You definitely do not want to miss out on part two. 
Thank you so much, Daryl. I'm truly honored that you are on the show today. And I really feel that your story needs to continuously be shared around the world because not only are you an inspiration, I believe, you really are somebody that has a huge heart and really helps people really rebuild themselves because I know that that comes from a very close place to your heart and we'll definitely touch on that. But thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, honored and it's, uh, it's a privilege. So I really appreciate you taking the time and effort and uh, I'm excited. I'm definitely excited. I've been looking forward to this. You know, me too. Me too. So, um, so tell me, Daryl, I would love to, for you to tell my audience what Very Cool is all about because it's such an incredible business. Just in your words, when did you found the business and what is your focus for Very Cool? Uh, founded the business back in 2015, the end of 2015, uh, for environmentally friendly insulation. I've seen that the tides were turning with EPS and uh, detrimental uh, petroleum-based products, and uh, I wanted to be a part of the solution. At the same time, I was in packaging. I was a packaging distributor at the time, working with uh, healthcare companies and food companies and so on. And um, I just felt that the time was going to be coming soon that styrofoam EPS was outside the door and uh, there was a solution that was needed. So I wanted to create something that was going to be cost-effective, environmentally friendly and better for our environment. I can't wait to get into that part of our conversation today because I can only imagine how many roadblocks you would have faced just even just in the beginning, just trying to get a, a product just to be created for you and have that vision that you have in your mind and actually bring that to life as well. So, but before we get into the business side of things, I, I'd really love to start from your origin story. You know, where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your childhood and, uh, and just, yeah, take me back to when you were a young kid. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a while, quite a ways back. I just turned 40 about six months ago. So happy <laughs> birthday. Like <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know what? I, I grew up in Richmond, California. I was born in 79 at the end of uh, 79. And, um, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a little difficult in the beginning. My mother and father uh, had us, you know, my mother was fairly young, roughly, I think about 19 years old. And um, it was a pretty abusive relationship. My oldest sister at the time was a year older than myself. She was a world-class runner at the age of five. Even till this day, she still has world records at the age of five and six that are still holding for half marathons and 10Ks and so on. And uh, my dad was extremely abusive with her, was extremely abusive with my mother as well, physically. It was rough times in the beginning. And uh, my mother and my father separated when I was roughly around, I would say, four, four years old. And uh, we ended up on our own, uh, single mom, trying to make do, early 80s, mid 80s. And the crack epidemic was uh, pretty strong and coming on full force, you know, cocaine and so on. And uh, she started taking up on, you know, narcotics and drugs and dipping. And she was a young mother and uh, it was hand to mouth. You know, we, we grew up in the system, you know, welfare system, government block cheese and support section eight and going from home to home, sleeping on family's floors and just trying to have a roof over our head. She did, our, she did her best. I'm grateful. She always tried to stay working, even through the times of partying. Things were a little difficult and with my father. Coming from an abusive relationship with the father, it's it's pretty difficult. So when when you were at what age did you realize that maybe things were not good at home, or when 
when you actually realized, hang on a second, yes, this is my life, but this doesn't feel like this is how things should be? Well, you know what? I, I remember I was, it was probably about six years old. I remember not, a, not having clean clothes all the time and having to go into the garage and try to fend for yourself and try to find clothes that just were not up to par standard to go to school that morning or not really having all the food that you wanted and your stomach was a little knotted up sometimes. And just always seeing so many others that had much more than you did at the time. You're still having fun. You're still a child. You, you don't really know the difference in financial stability in comparison with others. But you just knew that you, you always wanted a little bit more and you just knew that you had a little bit less. You know, it, it, it was difficult. But at the same time, it, it, depending on how you look at it, you can definitely learn a lot of lessons and be a more appreciative as you grow up. I think some of the difficult times is early on. I was um, when there was a lot of molestation and some things that had gone on in our family life with my sister and myself. There was a male babysitter that took advantage of her and myself and my father took advantage of my sister. So it was just a really tough time growing up. Uh, the abuse, the fear, the neglect. And as you know, you start getting older and you know, you get into the preteens, you start realizing that things are not making sense. They, these are not the typical norms. As you turn on a television and you see what you would consider a full house or the standard lifestyle, or you would talk to your other friends and so on and realize that things were just a little bit different for you and your family. So what kind of a relationship did you have with your sister? And what's the age gap between the both of you? We're literally one year apart. So I have two sisters. One year is, is a year younger. And then I have another sister that's a year older. We're all born in November. I'm November 17th. My youngest sister is November 21st. And my oldest sister is the, the, the 27th. Her birthday would fall <laughs> on Thanksgiving here and there. So she would get a little upset. So we're exactly a year apart. I think we're Valentine's babies. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, well, yeah, you would be, wouldn't you? <laughs> so <Yeah>. true. <laughs> so true. And so, and what, what was your relationship with your mother like? Did you feel like you had to be, you know, like the man of the house, the, the leader in the house, taking care of your family? You know what? As I, I was a very soft kid. I was very sentimental. I was scared of my own shadow. I was, uh, yeah, I was fearful of a lot of things. And I ended up going away for about a year and a half to a boarding school called Hannah Boy Center. It's an all boarding school in uh, Sonoma, California. And when I got back home, I came home to a home of chaos. My sister was gone and she was living in the streets. My other sister was living in a group home. I was roughly around 13. So my youngest, 12, had already been kicked out living in the streets. My oldest was living in some of the worst neighborhoods, living at whoever's homes being you know, going through a lot, something that a little girl shouldn't go through at that, especially that time in her life. And my, my relationship was my, with my mother at that time, there was a lot of resent, you know, why was our family like this? I think I've cast a lot of blame on her instead of my father. You know, you're going through so much and you're starting to understand what life and reality is about and taking ownership and having others take ownership of their actions. And there's a lot of pointing the fingers and a lot of questions. Why am I here? What's going on? It just it doesn't seem like the status quo. But at the same time, you love your mom. Uh, there's that deep admiration because I think a, a son and a, a mother share a, a certain bond. My father, we just, at that time, he was just absent. So he was just gone. But it was a good thing for us because less abuse. Yeah. 
obviously, of course, did you actually spend any time with your father? Like, as in, I know you did when you were a lot younger, but did you, do you have any real memories of him? Have you, are you still in contact with him? I'm not no more. Him and I broke off contact, I would say roughly around when I was around this time frame. We've seen each other a few times after, but it wasn't, there was not much of a connection. We did see him up until about the age of nine. Our, Our family was a very sport fanatic family. We ran a world-class track. Uh, my sister was a long distance runner. Uh, she carried the torch in the 84 Olympics. She ran the Boston Marathon at the age of six. So you, we were just always around it. But when that tide turned, he was no longer around. I remember coming back from boarding school and just realizing just everything was completely different. Yeah, okay. And, and why did you go to boarding school for a year? Just to get away. You know, I was, I was being raised by a single mom, I had two sisters, and I was a boy and I had no male role models. And it seemed like an oasis. I remember looking at the brochure. It was for Troubled Youth, uh, Hannah Voice Center, and it, it just looked like a wonderland. Uh, beautiful scenery, iconic views. Everybody had smiles on the brochures. And I was like, <laughs> this is a place that I want to go and have some fun. And it seemed like it was, it, it was going to be a place where I finally get to spend some time as a, as a child and enjoy childhood. And I'm so grateful. And now I'm, a, I'm actually an alumni and I'm actually a, a trustee on the board. Oh, really? So there's a real legacy oh, yeah. there. That's so, really beautiful. So what was your time there like? What was boarding school like? It was, it was that year and a half of my life that I can actually say I embraced as a child. And I can't sit there and complain too much because I got to do things there from swimming to building cages to sports to activities, fishing, deep sea fishing for the first time, first Lake Tahoe trip, camping. And to me, it was a boy's dream. It's all those things that you used to see on television, we actually got to accomplish there. So it was a great group of people that really cared about young boys and what they were going through and trying to develop us. And uh, it was the last grade I actually completed. I was in the seventh grade there. I graduated that summer from Hannah Boy Center. That was actually the last grade I completed as an adult. I mean, as a kid and an adult. So. And so that was basically your last year of schooling, practically. Is that, is that yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. And so what happened, what happened from that point on? I came back home and I realized that my family had, there was a lot that had come out. My father, my sister had finally talked about the sexual abuse that my father pushed on her. There was some other stuff. My mother had gotten married to a, a man that there was some accusations there as well. And I came back and my sisters weren't home. I'm living in a home with my mom and stepfather now realizing is he a part of the problem as well a lot of questions a lot of resent and my sisters and I we always fought growing up but we were always close it was us as a a group it was no one could argue with my sister except me you know and and, and they had the same type of love and asthma because we had been through so much so there was a lot of confusion and that's where the tide actually turned my sister had to come home one day from a visit from her group home the group home I don't know if you have group homes in Australia but uh, a group home is, is a home that a child goes to that's having trouble, that doesn't really have the structure environment. So, you know, and my sister, she had came home that, that, that Friday and, you know, I was spending some time with her. We were walking. We were still kids, 12 and 13 years old. And I remember asking my mom for something. I can't particularly put my finger on it, but I asked her for something and said, can I do something? And she disagreed. I walked outside the home in frustration my sister and I were walking down the street. I seen a bucket and I went to kick the bucket. And I remember 
because I seen the bucket, my foot went through the bucket. It's a standard five gallon plastic bucket and there happened to be glass inside. So I kicked the bucket, but it, luckily it didn't hurt me, but it made a lot of noise. And that noise, my, my mom came outside with my stepfather. And I remember my mom yelling, what, you know, what is this? What happened? What the F is this? And da, 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 da. And I got scared. I was a very timid kid at that time. And I, you know, I looked at my sister. I was like, ah, it's my sister. Oh, <laughs> it was you... actually me. <laughs> Just out of, out of like, out of fear. You, you said, yeah. oh, it's your sister. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> freaked out. And my sister looked, my sister looked at me like, what? I didn't do anything. And she's like, you know what? She gets frustrated with the situation and she's like, I'm leaving. I'm calling the group home to pick me up. She just didn't want to be a part of it. So as she was walking towards the house. Uh, my mother punched her in her face. And um, I remember my mother and my sister fighting on the ground. And my sister was on top of my mom and she was just hitting her and hitting her and hitting her. And, you know, I freaked out and I'm looking at my stepfather like, break this up. Like, what's, what are you doing? Like, break this up. And he was laughing. So I went to grab my sister off my mom and then I just seen black. I just remember seeing black, like what just happened. And I see myself flying into the street. I just feel my body, my momentum and my, my equilibrium's off for a split second. And my stepfather's there and he grabs me. I just realized he punched me in my face when I went to break, pull my sister off my mom. And you know, you're, you're a child, you're 13 years old, you're a young boy getting punched by a grown man. So it must've felt like a lightning bolt. And then he just started choking me. I remember him lifting me off the ground and my mother, I can remember seeing in my peripheral, my mother and my sister, they stopped and I can hear them in the background. My sister saying like, leave him alone, leave him alone, mom, like help him, help him. And um, he finally dropped me. And then my natural instinct was, you know, I'm trying to catch my breath, but now I'm angered. Like, man, you were just choking me. You just hit me. So I went to kick him. And then that was probably the worst thing I should have ever done because he, he went to town on me a little bit. And um, I thought for a split second, I was going to die. So there was a big chaos and commotion after that. And I remember my mom just saying, get the F out of here. You know, and I'm yelling back, you know, sort of just caught up in the moment, not really realizing what's going on. And my sister, like, We're, I'm out of here. I'm going back to the group home. And as we start walking down the street, it didn't really dawn on me. I had nowhere to go. I was a kid. I was 13 years old. I just got back from boarding school. That was my home. I have no friends in the, you know, not, not too many friends in the neighborhood. And uh, I didn't know what to do. So I remember walking my sister to the pickup spot, which was a bus stop. And I asked her, could I go with her to the group home? And she just says, no, they're not going to let you go. And I'm like, well, where am I going to go? It's just started getting dark. I'm starting to get scared because I'm, I'm a kid. I didn't know what else to do. And out of all the fear, and I had a lot of hatred towards my father at that time because I just found out a lot of stuff from my sister uh, about the stuff that he did. But I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. So I reached out to him and he told me he didn't want no part of it. He's like, he's not dealing with it. And I didn't know what to do. So my sister ended up getting picked up. She gave me a hug. I ended up walking around. And I remember there was a friend, there was a guy I knew named Lamar. And I stopped by and I uh, went to his house and he said I could spend a night for the, for a night or two, and which I did, but I didn't know where else to go. And he said, he, one day he told me I had to leave. So I called my father. I didn't know where else to call. I had no one's number. I'd been gone for a year and a half, two years. And my fear of being on the streets alone was so fearful that I was willing to go to a place and be with a man like that, even knowing that I knew he had did all those things 
uh, to my sister and everything else that I went on. And it was just so abusive. So he ends up picking me up, but unbeknownst to me at the time, he actually called my mom on his way to pick me up and said, Hey, I'll take care of Daryl, but I get to use them on my taxes for last year. So that was his good one up. He wanted to file taxes. So he would get, you know, a nice write off. So she agreed. And uh, the first thing my father did was slap me a pack of condoms and said, Hey, I'm out. You go live your life. Stay here. You come up in here, brush your teeth, wash your clothes. And I'm like, hold on, what are these? I'm not a part of that. I don't know anything about that at that time. I was a young kid and he, he was trying to make me grow up. So it was about two weeks of just, just chaos and just abandonment. He was never there. And he made some threats and some things one day and I ended up leaving. And I remember walking down the hill in the neighborhood and I was scared. I was lost. During that time of me coming back from boarding school, I had to sign up for school at that time. I went to a school called Helms. It was a really bad school at the time. And I remember seeing a kid that was at the school and I seen him on the streets and I was like, Hey, I don't have anywhere to go. You know, is there any way I could stay at your house tonight? And I didn't know this kid from Adam. And he says, yeah, absolutely. You know, so he was, he was fairly poor at the time. There was about, I think seven, eight of his family members in a one bedroom apartment. And uh, they took me in Un, uh, unknown to me. He was a gang member at the time and it started off early, you know, back then. And his gang started embracing me. You're just lost. You're a kid. And I didn't know there were what type of gang. I didn't know nothing about gangs at that moment. How old were you then, Daryl? I was 13. 13. Okay. So oh, still pretty yeah. young. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was pretty naive and I was scared of my own shadow. And I remember um, we were in North Richmond one night and we were at a party that you know, all the older gang members threw. And it was the first time I ever introduced myself to alcohol, started drinking. And my friend who's no longer here, he got murdered, but he was sitting next to me and he looked at me, he says, are you ready? Are you ready to do this? And I said, yeah, I'm ready. So uh, we went around back and they, they jumped me pretty, pretty good. I got beat by about 15, 20 guys for about, uh, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity. I was so scared at the time. I remember screaming for my mom while they were beating on me. I remember I thought they were going to kill me. Um, so why were they, why were they doing this? Was this part of like the process or? Yeah, just a part of the initiation process. Wow. And it was typical. Yeah, it was typical back then, you know, just trying to see if you have the muster to, to, you know, to, to be tough enough to accept a whooping like that. Just to take it basically. Yeah. Cause you, cause from what you're saying, you were really, you seem like a really quite peaceful, quite timid child going from that to that? Yeah, I was, I wasn't, I wouldn't say quiet and peaceful. I was a, I was a little kid that had a lot of energy, but I was very naive and I was very sentimental. I was soft. I didn't have the, the wherewithal to make it in the streets. I didn't understand the street the mentality and so on. But um, I remember that same day I got jumped in. I was pretty, I was bloodied up pretty bad. And the party got shot up by another group, a rival gang. And that's when I really, and I had never been shot at in my life. You start hearing the cracking sounds. You see the people riding up and down the streets. You're just like, what is going on? This is something that you see on television. So then you realize like, wow, this is real. Like, what did I just witness? And then I ended up being in a car. Of course, I was intoxicated. We ended up being a high-speed chase with the cops, ended up jumping out. And then, you know, it was just, it was, you're introduced to a completely different lifestyle. One of the hardest things for me was the transition to go from who I was to a gang member. The brutality, the shootings, 
the robberies. It's just not something that was norm for me. And I was already scared of my own shadow. So, but then you're at a place to where now you just join this, this group that is taking you in, that's loving you, feeding you, putting a roof over your head, but now you can't leave it. Cause if you do, they're going to try to kill you and you have nowhere else to go, but you're just like scratching your head. Like, I don't want to be here. I want to be normal. I want to go back to playing football. I want to go back to doing what I wanted to do, but it took a moment for the reality to set in. That's not going to happen anymore. And what did it, what does it mean to be a part of a gang? I, I, that may seem like a silly question, but what does it actually mean? And I like, there are there things that you have to do to sort of keep that camaraderie between each other and that trust? Cause I'm assuming trust would have to be a big part of it. So what does it actually mean to be a gang member? It's, um, you know, that trust, you do things that you don't want to do, especially when you're that, that young, you have to, some of the guys my age at that time, they were just so callous and so disconnected from the value of life. And I didn't understand it because to me, life was precious. I was raised different and I, I wasn't subjected to those streets and just the way the streets processed. And to, to slowly have that just push itself onto you. And then you have to prove that you're a part of them. And there were several times where they wanted me out. They realized that I wasn't what it was. And uh, it's funny because I got a friend, he's been in prison for the past 24 years. And he stood up. They, some of my gang member friends, my, we call them homeboys. My homeboys, they went to jump me and, and, and they put a licking on me. And he stood up for me. And he said, no, nah. he had just got out of prison at the time. And uh, he served a couple of years and uh, he stood up for me and he says, no, nah, this, this kid comes around every single day, give him some time. And slowly but surely it grew on me. You know, you start hating life, you start hating your family, you start hating everybody because you start questioning, why am I here? This is not the life that I wanted to choose. I wanted to be a football player. I wanted to play sports. I always thought I was going to be in the NFL. And, um, and you start, you're introduced to drugs. And then now you're a teenager uh, you're 13, 14, 15, and now you're exposed to certain things as life goes on, you know, women and so on. And then you start realizing and you go back in time, wow, I was molested by a man. So then you start going and questioning those issues that happened to you when you were younger. And then you have no one to talk to. You're going through the issues and you just want to lash out and all that hurt and all that pain. You know, it's a secondary emotion. You know, anger is a secondary emotion. So all of that hurt, all that pain that you're feeling manifests itself into something. And then it's anger. And then you have to release that anger and you're just building it up. And you're mad at everybody that you're supposed to love. You just, you're mad at God. You're mad at the world. And there comes a point in time where you just give up. You're just like, I guess this is just going to be my life. This is going to be my norm. You start getting tattoos. I, I remember... You know, I got my first tattoo when I was 14. There was a big blast on my arm. And then I got Richmond put on my neck and I had Crip put on my knuckles. And I just, I'm all tatted up everywhere. Because I thought one day I was going to walk to San Quentin Yard or Folsom State Penitentiary Yard. And I wanted to make sure that I couldn't hide, that everybody was going to know who I was, where I came from. Even if I was scared, I was going to have to wear my brand of who I am and deal with the consequences in that penitentiary. That's so interesting. So in a way you were, I guess, envisioning your future and still wanting to make a mark for your future, even though it hadn't happened yet, just to sort of protect yourself. So that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And I, uh, oh my gosh, like this is, uh, this is such an incredible 
you've, you, you've been through so much. You really, really have. And it seems like a, such a vicious cycle in terms of what was going on through your mind. So this, this hatred, this resentment, this feeling safe and comfortable in this place of, with this group of people that I guess took you in. But at what point did you feel powerful in that gang? Because the things that you would be doing are obviously things that are going to potentially hurt people or, or do things that are illegal and those sort of things. At what point did you actually feel like this is actually kind of making me feel good about myself? Like I'm actually quite powerful. No, you do. Because then you start learning how I can turn my, my pain into anger and that anger can manifest itself into hurting someone. Then you get this release. And then you start processing in your brain and your mind that life is not value. Like you don't value, you start disvaluing life. And I remember when I think I was about 15, I wanted to kill my father. And I was like, that man is the first man that I'm going to kill. I felt like he needed to die for what he did to my sister. And, you know, just understanding how easy it was to, to shoot and take a life. And you see it all around you, the lack of love for, you know, humanity. And then you want to, my dad was very abusive to me. My dad was the first person to call me a coward. My dad was the first person to call me a P word. My father was, he was very, very abusive. I was so not like what he wanted as a son. He wanted the tough guy. And that just wasn't my nature. And he would try to make me fight other boys. So now that I'm in a gang and now I'm feeling hard and now I'm feeling tough. Now I'm feeling like, well, come, come down my road now. I got something to show you. I'm going to show you what this world has done to me. I'm going to show you how bad I am now. And that just wasn't my nature. I had so much anger and vengeance in me. And now it was Daryl wanted to prove to everybody how bad and tough he was. Uh, but inside, I was just scared. I was lonely. I was hurt. I was abandoned. I was confused. And you just sort of lose yourself. You lose yourself. I lost myself in drugs. Crank and methamphetamine was big back then, you know, in the mid-90s. I just got really, really intoxicated and just really did that. And it was, it was, it was crazy times. You know, that's all I can say. The shootings, people getting murdered, people getting killed. You know, as I look at life now and knowing that I was involved in that type of environment and I was around, excuse me, around that environment, I get butterflies in my stomach. I'm like, I could never fathom my children going through that. I could never fathom my children walking down the street and feeling the fear that I've had to feel or look at it now, even as a grown adult, I couldn't process that. I couldn't be a part of that. Life to, life to me is so much precious. It's, it's so much more precious uh, than how we were living it. Does it feel like it was a different person in a, in a completely different lifetime when you think back of your past? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I, there was always the innocence of Daryl. And it's hard because when I think of me, I think of myself as the boy. And I remember that abandoned boy. And there was something inside that boy that just wanted to be loved, wanted to, to do right. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I loved animals. There was just certain things about me that the world was trying to pull away from me. And there were certain things I just wouldn't let go. And I loved nature. I always wanted to stand up for the ones that were weak and didn't have a voice. I couldn't stand bullies. 
there was a lot, but at the same time, I could see how the world was trying to pull itself from me. Now, when I look back at that child and I look at what I transitioned to, absolutely, I'm not that person because I, I disconnected from the young Daryl and I became so callous, but deep inside in my heart, I didn't feel that way, but I would suppress it. I would suppress the nice Daryl and I would just let the world just feel the bad Daryl. And then what really changed was, you know, I had a daughter, my girlfriend at the time, she got pregnant at, uh, when I was 16. I had my daughter when I was 17 and I remember just thinking like, wow, I don't want my kid to grow up like I grew up. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. I can't allow this to happen. So I remember volunteering and going to Job Corps in Reno. And I said, hey, I got to get myself together. I'm 17. I didn't go to high school. I'm not going to college. I don't have that lifestyle. I'm a gang member, but I want to be a better father than my father and my mom was. So I went, to, I went to Job Corps, was there for about a month and a half, and they kicked me out for selling, I was selling narcotics. And I still, that mentality still came with me. But I, one of the great things about it was I took the GED test. I took my um, general education test and without studying, I passed it. And that was pretty remarkable because I never went to school. So I'm like, how did I pass this? So yeah. I think that there was a little, <laughs> there was a little something there that Daryl- You're like, I'm actually, I'm actually smart. I'm a smart, I'm a smart person. Yeah. Yeah. That little boost. Yeah, yeah that's there. good. <laughs> and, and, and during that time, I had got incarcerated before that. When I was 15, I got arrested and I did about six months in, in jail. And uh, I met a reverend there. Uh, he was the chaplain of Juvenile Hall. And he would always pull me aside because I was always on special programs. I was always on lockdown. And when he would pull me aside, he would always tell me, Zero, you got something special in there. There's something different in you that most people don't have. You have something here. You could become a judge. You could become an attorney. You could be an advocate for those that need. And I used to laugh at him and laugh at him and laugh at him and be like, man, you're out of your mind. Mm. And <laughs> Did you feel like he would say that to everyone else as well? Or did you actually believe what he was saying to you? I did, but it was so deep when he was talking to me and he just spent so much time uh, with me that, you know, I wanted to believe it, but I thought it was just funny because I'd never heard stuff like that about myself. You know, you don't, you don't hear that about from your mom and dad and you just, and people never talk to you like that. No one ever built you up. And one of the things that was tough is my, my best friend got murdered. The same one that was sitting next to me and asked me, are you ready to get in? I got, I, I came back from job Corps. I got kicked out and we were all supposed to hang out that night. And I felt real weird about that night. And I remember walking down the hill where I lived to my mom's house, to my uncle's house. And my cousin asked me. She's no longer here. She, she, she asked me, why aren't you outside with your homeboys right now? And I said, I, I got a bad feeling about tonight. Something's going to go wrong. And I think they're going to, the crazy part about it is I said, I think uh, Woody's going to hit me up and tell me that Lazy's gone or Lazy got killed or something to that effect. And I didn't pay it no mind. I just, we continued the night. I ended up going home, slept for the first time at my mom's house, like a normal person. I'm 17 and a half. It was, I woke up, it was a fresh day and the phone rings. And my mom looks at me and said, hey, Woody's on the phone. So I picked up the phone. I'm like, hey, what's up, my boy? And then uh, he's like, sit down. And I'm like, sit down. He's like, Daryl, sit down. I need He called me B-Boy. B-Boy, sit down. And, I, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, Lazy's gone. And I'm like, I'm not understanding what he's talking about. He's like, Lazy's dead. He got killed last night. And I, and I, and I went to grin because I'm like, this is impossible. I just said this last night. But at the same time, the, the reality of like, what did you just say? That's my best friend. Like, what's going on? And it just, it all hit me. And there was a lot of reflection and soul searching and then the manner of which he was murdered and how 
how homeboys in our group and our gang watched him and left him while someone was chasing him down to get gunned down. Just that whole dynamics of that situation was very hard for me. But then it made me realize like, wow, this is an individual that I seen every day. This is my closest friend. You know, what, what just happened? What do you mean he's not going to come back? I, I, I got to bring him back. I'm going to see him again. And then you realize life can be taken from you that fast and you don't get a do over. When people are dying around you or the opposite people are dying around you when you're in that type of atmosphere, it doesn't touch you. It's not close, close to you. They're only feeling the wrath of your, your environment and the gang that you're in and whatever it is. But when you have to taste it for the first time, it makes you realize like, wow, I'm hurting like this. This is how other people hurt when people go away, when people are taken from them. And it's just like, I can't be a part of this process. I can't. I can't allow for this to, to be my life. This is too painful. And, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta make choices. So you didn't, it, you didn't, you didn't channel, you didn't get angry. You didn't feel like you had to go, I guess, get lasers revenge or anything like that. You didn't feel any of that. You just thought the complete opposite. I did. I, I did. And I'll tell you this. I wasn't mad at the gang that killed him because I felt like they were all doing what we did. I was more mad at my own, my own gang for in the manner of which he died. And I actually went to war with some of my gang members because of it. And I I could tell you some stories that have happened, but I don't want to get too deep. I don't want that on it, but it was, things got pretty rough, but I'll tell you this. I, I look at life now and, I know that no, no one's ever died by my hands. I don't have no one's blood on my hands. Have I done things that I'm not proud of? Have I lived a life that I'm not proud of? Yeah, I was a very young child. I was lost. There was about five years of my life that really about probably about seven years of my life that I just, I'm not happy with. And I think now when I look at life, I actually try to live life to fix all my wrongs and to try to make this world a better place. But I think one of the things that I'm most happy of is there's no blood on my hands. I don't have no one's blood. And to me, to, 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 to be able to live life coming from the environment that I, I came around, I, I grew up in with that many people passing away around you, it's, it's a good thing to say. A hundred percent. I completely agree with you. I don't know what it's like to be in an environment like that, but I know that if I had to choose, I wouldn't want to walk away knowing that I had ended somebody's life as well because I just I just don't know how you could I just don't know how anyone could be able to move on from that but obviously a lot of people have but I just I wouldn't know how I could do it myself so I agree with you no absolutely I've seen people murdered I've seen people shot I've been around there I've shot at people you've done you know that was life back then and there was times where someone would get shot and you would just let it be and you would go laugh and go party right afterwards just to think that I was so disconnected and I was so abandoned from reality. It's so sad that so many other children are out there. That's why I really like how crime has actually improved over the past 20 years. When I go back to Richmond, Richmond at that time had a murder rate for uh, a population of around 95,000, had a murder rate of about 45 a year. So just imagine how many shootings and, and, and shootings there were. Now that same city only has a population of a quarter of that. And to me, it's like, oh, it's, I'm so grateful for that. Like, we're turning the tides. Like, the tides have to change. Um, but it is what it is. So when you, um, I guess, decided to change your life, so you were in your late teens because you, you became a father and you made a promise to yourself that you wanted to give 
your child a different life and be a different parent. So what was the biggest turning point from there? Like what was the thing that you did that really helped you really just push through and not only focus on yourself, but also be able to grow as a person, but also as a father as well? You know, I, I, I used to hate God. And then I came to the realization that there was a God and that I'm actually loved, that I'm valued, that the world's been lying to me, that the devil wants my soul and he's not going to get it. And once I realized that I had value and that I can accomplish anything in this world, when I looked at King David and, um, you know, just certain things that he was able to accomplish and just certain things, I was like, man, if I got God on my side, just imagine the things that I can accomplish in life. So, um, I told myself I was going to be a plumber for the Pipe Fitters Association. And I remember when I, <laughs> I didn't know how to dress for my interview. So I wore like this old borrowed suit that I got from someone. And the union hall was laughing at me because I came in there like, that's not how you dress to a plumbery. You're supposed to come in the plumbery. <laughs> you wore <club."> a suit. <laughs> I, the yeah, best, suit. best dressed plumber <laughs> around. <laughs> exactly. And then I realized that I had a knack for communication. That even though I, I spoke Ebonics, I didn't, I wasn't educated. I didn't know how to spell. I didn't know how to, I could barely read. I, I couldn't articulate specific, um, my vocabulary was minimized to the, to the point of if I was like a child. But then I realized that there was something about me. And as I was working as a service plumber, I was able to sell jobs and communicate those skills. People took a knack for seeing a transparency and an honesty within me and having trust in me. And I think I always had that no matter how I looked, if I was bald head, if I was tatted all up, that true girl started coming out more and more. And that's what I like. And I always wanted more for my children. The difficult part was I just got married to my, um, to my daughter and son's mom at that time. She wasn't, they weren't, they weren't here. I had just got married. I just had a daughter and I was about 20 and I was doing fairly well. And to make it, I ended up in a different city because my old gang ended up shooting up my house. I was, I was, they tried to kill me one night and uh, shot up my house. Bullets were flying everywhere. And my mother was like, Hey, I know you're trying to do well, but you got to go where they're going to kill you. So I ended up going about a County away to a different uh, city and uh, stayed, stay focused on my course of plumbing. And then I blew my back out at work. And when I blew my back out, I couldn't pay our rent. I was 21 years old, just had a child, just married, and didn't have any food. Workman's comp would claim the case. They looked at me from just a physical standpoint, seeing tattoos. They thought I was trying to milk the system, but I couldn't walk. It was one of the hardest times in my life, and it was difficult. And next, you know, we're getting evicted. And some of my old homeboys came to me and said, Daryl, why don't you... Uh, you know, I got some drugs for you to sell. You can go back to your thing. And I just didn't feel comfortable going back to that lifestyle. And then, you know, next thing you know, you really don't have food. People are getting tired of you coming to their house and eating dinner. And I didn't know what else to do. And of course, that was the norm. So I finally went back to that lifestyle and started selling drugs again. And that opened up a whole nother Pandora's box because now I'm 21 years old. I'm an adult. Now I'm involved in this environment again that's not a good environment, guns, drugs, a lot of things that you just, it's just not a safe environment, especially for a family. But once you're in it, it's too hard to get out again. And the police ended up catching me with some firearms. And uh, someone said I made threats against them. 
So now I'm fighting a prison case. They were trying to send me to prison for five years. And it was a difficult time. So now I have a daughter that's a year and a half. I have a wife that's pregnant with my son. And now I'm fighting five years in prison. And I'm like, what just happened? All that work that I had just done to rebuild my life and to get out of that lifestyle. Now I'm back in and I know my heart. I know where I want to go. This is not my story. This is not who I am. I'm going to be the time. I'm going to be a, my children are going to be fatherless. This is, I can't have my children in this world without me. So I remember making a lot of promises to God. I remember my daughter, she was like my inspiration because I would just talk to her while she was in my cell, like in my cell. I was on 23 hour lockdown because of my gang profile. So I was 23 hour lockdown, ad seg, in the hole, fighting my case. And it's like living in a bathroom, but you get out an hour a day to shower and to use the phone. Uh, so it, it was horrible. You have a 24 seven light. There is no darkness in your room. They always have to monitor your cell just to make sure you're not breaking out or whatever it might be. So it was, it was, it was living hell. So you start creating your own reality in there. And then you have to go back and reflect on all the choices that you've made in life. That's a lot of reflection that you have to do. And my daughter was my inspiration. And I just said, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a father. And I made a lot of promises to God. And I told God, if he gave me this one opportunity, this one chance, I promise I'll come out and I'll live God. I'll live my life for him and others and for whoever. My life is going to be a sacrifice to the world. And I was fighting my case. I was going to preliminary trial. And the judge, for some reason, jumped up. And, you know, he, he, he started asking me some questions. And uh, he says, there's something about this kid I don't want to send away. He's like, Mr. Job, if I gave you six more months, would you take it? And I said, absolutely, yes. I'll spend another oh, six months here. <laughs> so I was like, no problem at all. And, and the district attorney was extremely upset. They were trying to give me a plea bargain down to three years, two months. And I just couldn't see myself in a prison cell. I was just like, you know, county jail is one thing fighting your case, but prison, I don't want to go to that San Quentin. I don't want to go to that Folsom. I know I was trying to go at one point in my life, but that's not me anymore. But the beautiful thing about it is I appreciate that time because it stopped me in my tracks and it set me up for my future. It made me realize that I'm in control of my own destiny. And I made promises to God to never steal, to not take something that's not mine, to not hurt humans, to, not, to love my brother, to love those that don't have a voice to be a vehicle for those that don't have the strength to be a father to my children and to live my life as an example that I'm not going to let my past be my past, that I'm not a product of my environment. I'm a product of my choices. And when you really, really embody that, that can be huge, but you have to find the strength. And one of the most beautiful things that I would always go back to is Reverend Tinsley. I would go back to that man that would tell me, Daryl, you can do anything. And as I started accomplishing things in my life, as things got better, you know, at 23, 24, 25, after I got out, I was just like, I would just listen to those words and I, it would inspire me to push through. But um, it's been a journey. Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. At Deconstructing Success, we have so many more incredible conversations for you to download, listen to and share. Check out the links in the podcast description so that you can continue to learn, apply, and evolve. 
we would love for you to support the show. And you can do this by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or leaving a comment on your favorite platform. You can also share this episode with someone that you know who can benefit from listening to today's show. If you wish to connect with me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Just type in Tima Alhaj, send me a direct message, and let me know which episode you listen to. All of the links are in the podcast description. Your future success is waiting for you. Until next time, this is Tima.